When the bang hits your blood like a big wooden club, it's a Thursday. Now, this show doesn't need me singing, but I do have a bang open. When the bang hits your blood like a big wooden club, it's a Thursday. Because it is, it's a Thursday. Hopefully this will be a short one because i got to work out and stuff. Um, but uh, nothing like a good Thursday workout. But, uh, you know, I was thinking about how we're, we are basically these meta-identities. We are these meta-identities having meta-conversations. And I think that's why everybody feels so insane right now. I mean, that's not the reason. But, I mean, that's a description of what's going on. And I was thinking, I've been thinking about this a lot for the last couple of years, but it's only intensified, I think, especially as our contact with other people has become more limited. You become more aware of the way people actually talk and for that matter, the way they, the way, the way, the, the way that they talk has changed, you know, in the last year and a half. But I mean, all of the way, all of the ways that people are talking now, like even though some of it's induced by hysteria, you know, some of it's just the bizarre world we've been living in. They're all following patterns that have been in place for years. You know, none of this is new, I think, is the important thing. And you can't let your brain reset because when your brain resets, you start thinking that 2016 is when all this started happening. Oh, 2012, 2011 is when this started happening. 2007, oh, the year 2000, you know, it's, you can always find like a, you know, when your brain resets, you can always find like a time when you think something started happening, like, oh, this is when it started. But in fact, it was something that was developing long before that. And of course, you're blinded by your age. Like, I wouldn't be able to tell, beyond like whatever research I've done, I wouldn't be able to tell you about everything that was playing out, you know, before I was born. But you do often find, like through research, you often do find that patterns were playing out long before you were born, maybe forever. But we don't need to go that deep and far back with it. But one thing in particular, I'd like just to get this back on track, because this, this is becoming a meta conversation. Hard not to. Because, I mean, meta conversations, it just often it means, you know, dwelling in the abstract. And if you know you're doing that, that's fine. But we're having meta conversations now that we think are based on fundamental reality. And one way that this has disturbed me is the increasing popularity, the, the, the increasing use of what I would call therapy speak. And it's not just from that industry. It's not just from the mental health industry, but the mental health therapy industry has kind of provided the language and framework for talking this way. And it's taken off because if you notice, like a lot of women on social media, for example, they talk this way almost exclusively. And a lot of their infographics and like, like adult women memes, which are a thing, you know, I mean, I, I hate to be like, it's a thing. Oh, is that a thing? I hate when people say that, but sometimes a thing is a thing. Oh, is that a thing? I gotta, I should never say that again. Um, just shows you how things infect your brain. But, um, you know, like, like adult women have their own memes, obviously, but they're not like, they're not comedy. They're usually about like how to treat people or how to take care of yourself or your feelings. It's very much based. It's sort of a meta. I mean, cause memes by their very nature, even though they try to communicate something direct, they're often based on sort of a meta thought. And so these, these memes and infographics and just the, these sort of ideas that go viral, especially on social media, especially with women, they tend to be rooted in this sort of therapy speak or this therapy mindset. And that's all well and good because like I've said before, I mean, therapy provides people with tools. I've never been to therapy. I don't ever plan on going. One of my good friends is, is a therapist. You know, I, I know several therapists. I used to work in a business directly related to that. You know, I used to work in a business in that industry, directly involved with that industry. It wasn't a mental health practice, 
but it was pretty much as close as you can get without actually providing mental health care. So I, I, I do feel that I know more about this industry than maybe the average person. And when you work at a business like that, everybody talks that way. Everybody talks in the way that I'm talking. It's always a meta conversation. And just to provide an example, if you're talking to somebody, they'll say, what I'm hearing is that you're feeling this. And I'm feeling like you're hearing that like it's all there. There's several different layers. It's like, it's like you're talking about an emotion or a reaction, but you're putting several layers between that emotion and the conversation, which in theory should be good. Like as a technique, that's good because it's making it not about the emotion itself, which if the emotion is heated, you want to put some space, like you, you want to put a buffer around it. But we're now talking about all emotion that way. We're all talking about everything that way. Not, and not everybody, but I just mean this certain sort of person and it's become increasingly prevalent. But you can't actually have a conversation with them, a personal conversation with them, because you, it sounds like you're, you, you can practically see the worksheet their therapist gave them that says, oh, when someone's upset or they're saying this, respond to them with this phrase. But it's like once you know that trick, like you're like, oh, this isn't you responding anymore. Like if you know the tricks that are taught, like if you, let's call them techniques, let's be fair and just call them techniques. But like if you're aware of those techniques and someone does them to you, you feel like you're talking to an AI bot because you pretty much are. This way of talking has been programmed into them and that's impacted my personal life. Like somebody I love, I was having a conversation with them and I was just, I was kind of venting and joke, but I was joking around and the conversation went as if it were scripted, where it was like, what I'm hearing is that you're feeling this. And I want to acknowledge that I'm feeling what you're hearing, which is this. And I feel that I, you know, it's, it's, it's very strange and it's becoming increasingly common. And like talking to this person I love, you know, I was just like, oh, I don't, I'm not actually being listened to. The whole idea is to let somebody know that you're hearing them and listening to them, but you end up not feeling listened to at all. And not only that, but by following that script and that way of thinking, you negate the humor and you negate just the need to vent. Because that's something that I think people miss out on is, I mean, a lot of people know that like if, if you have a significant other and they come home from work and they're, they're just, they're complaining about work, you just listen and maybe maybe banter a little bit but it's it's not something that needs like some sort of first aid kit a psychological first aid kit it's something you just let them do and if they do it too much it's like well all you do is complain about work so you either need to get a new job or just learn to deal with it because there reaches a point where you you can't listen to somebody complain about the same thing over and over again but if there's a sense of humor involved too that makes it fun and that's that's me like you know, I feel like any time that I'm venting, I try to frame it around humor. And maybe that's just my excuse. Like maybe that's my justification that, oh, if I make it funny or I have a sense of humor about it, one, it means that it's not going to corrupt my soul as much. Because if I can find the humor in something, you know, I think my soul is going to be a little less corrupted at the end of the, you know, I'm trying not to say at the end of the day. It's another thing I don't want to say. My friend pointed out to me how he doesn't like how people say at the end of the day, how it's kind of a verbal tick. And I've caught myself doing it lately and I'm just like, Egh. at the beginning of the day, <laughs> at the beginning of the day, <laughs> what's the difference between the end of the day and the beginning of the day anyway? But anyway, it's, it's, it's interesting that these techniques that have been taught to like allow people to have conversations about their emotions actually turn into these weird clinical, you, you don't feel that those are human conversations, especially if you don't really buy into that way of talking. And I don't know any men who talk this way. I know that they exist. 
I, I've seen, I, I've, I've had conversations. Well, no, I mean, no, I'm lying, actually. I'm completely lying. Because when I worked in that business that was involved with the therapy industry, the mental health industry, a bunch of men there talked that way. A bunch of them talked that way. So, I mean, it's it's definitely not, it, it's, it's, it's like kind of like an ideology or something. You know, I don't, I don't mean to, I don't mean to say that they're motivated for ideological reasons, although we can see that they are. I mean, we can see where the mental health industry is very ideological, very political. But I don't think talking that way itself is necessarily ideological. I mean, it, it's, it does show you the way they view the world, because the more you talk that way, the more you see the world in those terms. And when people don't follow that, there's a tendency to view them as, as being somehow untrue to themselves. Or out of control, even. Because, I mean, that's kind of the thing, too, is that it's an attempt to kind of control a situation where emotions are high. But it sort of negates the fact that, like, sometimes emotions are high because that's fun. And it assumes, you know, it's, it's fun and like, and two, that's where humor comes in. Because I, I, I see this whole way of talking as sort of a humorless, you end up, you know, you end up feeling like, like you're talking to an alien who learned some of the basic ways to communicate, but it doesn't actually, they don't actually feel it. It's not actually a part of them because they're an alien species. So all they can do is basically read from a script. And it's just, it's so interesting because it's designed to do the opposite. But I do think there's a sort of a person who loves this. You know, there is a sort of person who loves to sit there and talk in these meta conversations about emotions. But meanwhile, the emotion isn't coming through. But again, I mean, I know that's part of the tool. Part of it is when emotions are out of control, this way of talking sort of removes you from the emotion itself, or it prevents the emotion from dominating everything. I completely understand that. And I understand that that can be an effective tool. Like if somebody truly is like, like if somebody's about to physically jump off a cliff and kill themselves and they're hysterical, or if somebody has a severe anger problem where it truly is affecting their life and affecting the lives of those around them. I understand the need for meta conversations that remove that person from what they're feeling right then while acknowledging what they're feeling. Because I think at its best, that's what that's designed to do. That's what that way of talking is designed to do. It's designed to acknowledge the, like recognize how that person is feeling while also removing them from that feeling, controlling them, you know, if that makes any sense. So I understand it as a tool, but it's become ingrained in more and more people. And it is political. It is ideological because you can see where that way of talking, like, like you don't meet many Republicans who talk that way. And, and even though I've had firsthand experience with men who talk that way, my friends don't talk that way. My male relatives don't talk that way. And even friends of mine who, who would consider themselves liberals most of the men don't talk that way. Whereas it seems like increasingly the majority of liberal women I know do kind of talk in those terms. And if that's effective for them, that's fine. But it's just, it's very strange to me. And it, it, I don't know, I, I guess I have a much different view of emotion in general. You know, I, I kind of, I always, I kind of treat emotion like it's, it's the color. It's, it's the way something is colored. And like kind of seeing it that way, I don't know. I, it, I wouldn't even say it makes it more manageable because I guess I don't even think in those terms. I think like, <laughs> I, I think that I've done best. <laughs> Here I'm talking about my emotions. But no, I, I think that I've managed to reach a point emotionally that, uh, that makes sense to me because I don't think about that. Or I think about it in a fairly general way. You know, like I talk about catabasis, where it's like if I feel myself hitting a low point, I don't sit there and like dissect the individual emotion I'm feeling. If I have to, I will. But it's just that I, I'm like, okay, I'm descending. And it doesn't actually make a difference what it is that's causing me to descend because that's the sensation. 
and it doesn't make a difference what causes me to, or, or it's the exact same idea that like, it also doesn't make a difference what helps me ascend out of this because I have to take any opportunity available. So it makes no difference what causes me to descend into catabasis because the result is the same. I'm entering catabasis. But the same principle gets me out in that I'm not looking for one specific thing or one specific, you know, I'm not going to analyze and dissect the thing that helps me get out of that state because I'm willing to let anything do that. And that's why I, I have to remain open-minded, one of many reasons, but it's because you never know like which ledge is going to be the one that you scale to get out. Which one has the right footing? You know, you can't necessarily pick and choose them. Like when someone's trapped in a, you know, there's been a, uh, a rock, what do you call that? Like a rock, uh, like a mine has collapsed. You know, you're in a collapsed mine. You're not thinking, well, I'd really prefer to get out through the front. I'd really prefer to get out the way I came in. Well, it'd be a lot better if I exited, you know, on the north side. No, you're going to choose any way you can. If you want to get out of that collapsed mine, you have to choose any single speck of light that you find. You'll choose any exit you can. You're not going to pick and choose the exit. So that's kind of my view on, you know, that descent. You know, the descent into darkness, the catabasis. It's that anything could put you down there. Any emotion. And more often than not, it's when, an, when a high emotion, when a good emotion turns into a bad emotion. That's often what puts you down into catabasis. It's often a high fall where you go from either having a certain feeling that, that's desirable or wanting that feeling and seeking that feeling and either, real, and, and either having that feeling taken away from you or realizing you can't you can't gain that feeling. And I don't think it's any surprise that one of the leading causes of, of, of catabasis is romance. You know, you think about somebody who becomes severely depressed. If it's from a breakup, like even if the relationship wasn't really happy for a while, they still had that ideal in their head. And so there's this immense feeling of loss that you had this really good thing and because you lost that really good thing, the only way to respond is to feel bad, to feel horrible. And so a lot of people become severely depressed in that situation. But even if you didn't have that, like even if you were a guy, I mean, I think this happens too, with, where if there's a guy who is really into a girl, man, he's really into a girl. And he has this vision and he's just like, oh, it's going to work out. I just hope it works out. I hope she eventually likes me. I hope she eventually likes me. And then she gets a new boyfriend. Like she's, she shows no interest in you. She gets a new boyfriend. That'll make somebody very depressed. If the girl that you put on this pedestal goes for another guy, that'll make someone depressed too. And so in that case, it's not that you're necessarily going from like a good, you're not in your desired place, but you had that desired place. It was, you had hope. You had that ideal that maybe it'll work out and she'll eventually look in my direction. Even though she's known you for 10 years and she's never shown any interest in you, you still had it, <laughs> you still had it in your head. There, you might have a chance and then you found out you don't. So it's, you can see where it's, it's, it's either you're in a desirable place or that desirable place still feels possible. But when either of those are taken away, you go from a high place to a low place. And so a lot of, you know, your, your own practice and your own mental training and somebody might like the way I talk about this, somebody might hear the way I talk and it might very well feel like the same. Somebody might feel the same aversion to this as they do therapy talk. Like the way I talk might be somebody else's therapy talk and you just have to acknowledge that. Not everybody's going to like the way that you frame things. And I'm sure a lot of the therapy talks are to people, they would hate the way I talk. And, and actually, I know that because you have to be very careful what you say around them. 
because everything is this meta conversation about hearing each other and hearing what he, what everybody else is feeling. You there, it's an extremely sensitive situation. Trust me. Um, but anyway, like that, I mean, that's why you develop discipline and a, and a certain level of practice so that, you know, you don't always just drop. And of course there are other reasons for discipline and practice, but when it comes to emotions specifically, you don't want to just go from a high to a low all the time. And you, and you similarly don't want to feel like you have to go from a low to a high. That's the beauty of neutrality. And the beauty of it too is that the spectrum of neutrality is huge. And it gives you a lot of opportunity to climb out. Or if you do have to fall, you don't fall as far or you fall more gradually. But anyway, I, I want to I start, compl- rather, rather than giving my own, what I think are helpful tips, I'd rather just complain about other people. I think I've covered it though. There's that, it's a meta conversation that people are having where when they, anytime someone engages, because when you think about like talking to a therapist, that has to be a meta conversation because this person doesn't actually know you. And no matter how many times somebody goes to therapy, again, I've never been, so somebody could tell me I'm wrong, but I think as a general observation, this is basically right, that like that person can't truly know you. They're not your family. They're not your friend. They might learn things about you that other people don't know. They might understand you the way you think in ways that other people can't know. But still, it's somebody that you're hiring to analyze your thoughts and your brain and give you helpful tools and talk it out. So, you know, of course that's going to be a meta conversation. You have to, that's why it's kind of, I think that's kind of why that way of talking was even developed. You know, in addition to providing someone with a tool, it's really the only way that a total stranger can talk to a random person who's hiring them. You know, you know what I mean? And just in the way that a therapist is going to analyze, I mean, you think about psychology in general, it's a meta study. I mean, everything is going to turn in, it turns out everything's meta, which is kind of, it kind of is, but I think these modern developments have taken it even further out there. But then you, you see this parallel, like increasingly meta identities, and I'm having trouble remembering how much I've covered this lately because I've had a couple discussions with people about these same subjects recently, privately. A couple friends and I have been going back and forth about some of these subjects, and so I'm not sure what I've said to them versus what I've said on here. This shows my friend too. <laughs> um, but, but just to sum it up, like, you know, we obviously live in a world of meta identities. I was saying to my friend how, you know, when I was growing up, teenagers developed a hobby and interest, whether it was sincere or not, doesn't really matter. You know, of course, teenagers will pretend to be into things because they like the way it makes them seem. They like what it signals. But still, like that identity is still based on hobbies and interests. Like when I grew up and I know when previous generations grew up, that was just mandatory. And I mean, and it wasn't necessarily niche things. It could be anything from like being into sports, you know, being into music, being into bands, being into nerd, nerd stuff. It didn't matter what it was. Your hobbies and interests very much defined who you were. Not a hundred percent, and you could be into different things, but most of the teenage identities, and like when you look at them, like when you look at some of the ones that people talk about the most to this day, whether they still exist or not, I don't know. But like you think about like a goth, the goth kids, the jocks, the nerds, the skaters, the skaters, uh, you know, you think about all those categories. And when you get beyond like how your brain thinks of those, because you're, it's so used to them, it's so used to those being categories of people. Like when you actually look at them though, they're all based on a certain hobby or interest, you know, and that's how our identities were formed. And, and we were also limited. Like I got the internet as a young teenager, but I used it to further my existing interests. Like when I got the internet, I wasn't just using the internet for the internet's sake. And I didn't see it as an end unto itself. 
I saw the internet as a means to increase my knowledge, my taste, my communication with music first and foremost, because that was around the age that I was getting more and more into music of different kinds, you know, just really turning into a music fan. And so what did I use the internet for? Oh, I can find out about more bands. I can talk to other people who are into these things. You know, I can get more information. You know, like I was saying in a recent episode, it used to be very difficult to even know a band's full discography. You need take that for granted now that you can go to Wikipedia or Discogs or any number of websites, and there's a complete list of every single thing a band ever did, including singles, EPs, splits, compilations. Like, you were lucky if you, you even knew a band's full discography at a certain point. And so the internet, like, it's going to facilitate all of that, you know, your your hobby, you know, and it's not to say that it didn't lead to you getting into other things, but those other things usually were a direct branch off from your existing interests. So it wasn't really that different from being interested in things in the flesh. It really was, you didn't really develop a meta identity. It was just that you had a hobby and interest, who you were was influenced by that. And I always felt like, you know, because it's true though that like, you know, we tend to assume, you know, we tend to think of like, like one particular identity as dominating a person, but it was like, I played football. I was also an artist, not because I wanted to be, oh, dude, look at me. I'm so, uh, look at me. I'm, uh, you didn't expect this. Oh, you didn't expect the football player to be an artist, did you? You know, that never even entered my mind. I just loved both those things. I loved football and I loved music and art and for that matter of video games, you know, it's like, I, I just kind of liked anything I liked, you know, but at some point though, you do kind of double down on a certain identity. And I do feel that I did that. Like, even though I always had like a range of interests, you know, out that, that weren't necessarily associated with each other, you know, at some point I did just kind of become a guy who was into bands. You know, at some point by high school, I was just wearing band shirts. I grew my hair long and you know, that was pretty much my identity. So you end up kind of taking something on, you know, at least on the outside. But still, like looking at that, like for generations, that's what happened. Where it's like you had hobbies and interests and your identity was a reflection, a direct reflection of those hobbies and interests. And even with the internet, like even being at a, I would say a fairly... You know, you're, you're still soft when you're, let's say I got the internet around like what, 12, 13 years old, probably. And you're still soft at that point. So like whatever you come into contact can influence you. But at that point in time, the internet didn't have its own culture, really. You know, it didn't have its own flavor. And so you used the internet to further your existing interests or make connections between that interest and other interests. It was still fairly organic. And that's around the time that I noticed, or not, not around the time, but then it was, it was a little while later that I started to notice that younger generations, or at least, I mean, I, at least kids who were five or so years younger than I was, I started to notice that they were more and more influenced by this rapidly increasing internet culture. And I, I already talked about memes and that sort of thing and the meta humor that the internet developed over time. I already talked about that in a recent episode, so I'll, I'll avoid it this time. But you can see where like that became an actual interest in and of itself. It wasn't that teenagers and youth were getting on the internet to expand their existing interests and their existing identities. It's that simply the internet's own culture, if you want to call it that, its own subcultures, those became the means and the end unto themselves. And it being the internet, and with more and more people using the internet, and even the, even the people who were already using the internet using it more, that led to just a, a more and more surreal meta experience. And what I've noticed with young people today, and it's not just teenagers, but I would say this is definitely true with uh, Gen Z, maybe the younger end of millennials, millennials. Hello, fellow millennials. I'm the main millennial, kids. Listen to me. 
But when uh, I, something I noticed with younger millennials and the Zomers was that their identities have become increasingly based on the idea of identity itself. Whereas my generation, we formed identities based on our hobbies and interests. And like I said, that wasn't always sincere. There were posers. But what you were trying to communicate was still the same thing. It was still, these are my hobbies and interests, and I want you to know that. Whether you're posing or not doesn't matter. That's still what you're trying to communicate. The purpose of the identity is to communicate that about you. But with this increasingly online culture and youth growing up, you know, focusing primarily on the internet, yeah, they're still into music, they're still into movies and TV, but those are kind of satellites around this digital world they live in. And they're not as important to those kids. You can just tell. You can tell that even though people still worship, they worship K-pop and all kinds of things, you know, you can tell that music, movies, and TV don't matter as much to them. Those are just kind of components of this swirling, chaotic, larger mess. And and we're so oversaturated in, in those things. And in my opinion, they've dropped in quality. They've dropped in meaning. You know, someone can disagree with that if they want. That's how I feel. But, you know, with all of that, like those things, they're not even asking to be important. My opinion is that new music, new movies, TV most media in, in, in entertainment, it's not even asking for people to find it important anymore. And it still does have some importance because the old systems are still in place, like record labels, you know, corporations, the culture, it still promotes those things. And so a certain number of people just latch onto it. But I really don't see those things playing as fundamental of a role in youth identity anymore. And I think the youth identity is far more based on this meta world that exists in the internet itself. And that's been infused with politics. Whereas like my generation, like we formed identities often rebellious. Not everybody though. I mean, obviously there are people would form identities based on where like somebody would see, oh, the kids that are popular wear Abercrombie and Fitch. So I'm going to buy Abercrombie and Fitch. Oh, the kids who are popular like this, or maybe you genuinely like that. Believe it or not, there were popular kids who just genuinely liked Polo Sport and Tommy Hilfiger and Gangster Rap and R&B. There were kids who genuinely liked that, you know, and, but there were also kids who were just like, that's what the cool kids are doing. I want to, I want to associate with them. I want to be seen the way they're seen. Um, But with, uh, you know, the internet kind of becoming the prime focus for these new generations, or what I was going to say politically too, uh, nobody really felt like they, they, like when you got into a, a teenage identity, it wasn't political. Like when I was growing up, it was not political. Like even if you became a punk who draws anarchy symbols, you still weren't really political. Nobody saw you. You didn't see yourself through a political lens. Like you didn't feel like you were actually part of a political movement. Yeah, that might have been a bridge that got you involved in politics. You know, a lot of kids I knew who got into punk got into like vegan activism for a, a spell. They took on political viewpoints. But it really, it wasn't that politicized. It was still, it was more about the culture. It was more about the music. It was more about the art. It was more about the identity than it was politics. And you didn't feel that any major political group was backing you. And that was true for jocks too. I mean, that was true for very mainstream popular type kids as well, is that even though they were doing what in theory the powers that be want them to do, like, oh, you're playing football. You know, you're, you're dressing conservatively. You know, it's not like they really had political support for doing that. They had cultural support. You know, there's, there's always cultural reinforcement to be normal. But it wasn't like they had political backing. It wasn't like there was any dialogue where, you, you know, yeah, there were conservatives who were like, you know, a man should have short hair. In my day, all the all the boys had had crew cuts. 
I don't know what this long hair is about. You always have views like that among conservatives, but it's not like they were propping up men with short hair. Like when an old man would see, like say some old man sees a young man who has a crew cut, he might be like, it sure is nice to see a young man with short hair. You know, people say that. That sounds like a joke. Old men would say that. It was ridiculous. But there was, it wasn't like they backed those guys politically. It wasn't like they, there was any, it wasn't like conservatives were backing young men who had crew cuts or chose to represent themselves that way. And same thing for like punks or somebody who was, you know, had an, an interest that did inter- intersect more with politics. And a lot of that just came down to wanting to feel like a rebel. I mean, that's what I found with most kids I knew who got into punk is any politics they had were more based on a desire to rebel against the status quo. And like I mentioned in a recent episode, like two of like the earliest, most serious punk kids I knew might now be considered conservatives. Uh, you know, it's just interesting that they were like the, the most dedicated and they, and people who they they remained unique. Like for them, it wasn't just a phase entirely. They were kids who were unique at the time. And I think they've kind of, you know, no matter which direction their life has gone, they, I think they consider themselves independent thinkers. And what's funny is I know both of those people now to be like one of them, the guy is like <laughs> throughout the entire, uh, throughout the last year and a half, he's like fighting the fight against COVID like COVID, you know, he's calling COVID a hoax. He, he's against masks. Like, it's just kind of funny. You know, stuff that I don't necessarily even agree with, but I'm just like, I like that he's still just rebelling. And now what that means is he's rebelling against the current powers that be. And he I, he hates like cancel culture and all that. But he's he's like one of those guys, though, like where it's like he, he's a good guy. But like I'm just saying he's like one of those guys, though, like he's not a conservative. He doesn't consider himself a Republican or anything like he'll find like that black guy who says exactly what you know, conservatives typically say, and then like prop that guy up, you know, cause it's like, well, here it is here, here a black guy is saying it. So I'm just, I'm just kind of commenting that like, that's kind of his branch. Like it's not very far off from what you see with like other disaffected leftists and stuff like that. And then the girl that I know who was a punk back then, like she's full on, like, like she's full on, <laughs> you know, anti-left now. Uh, it's just funny. How those were the kids who would have been considered like the most radical far left when I was 15. And now they're certainly no longer in that category. But a lot of the politics were kind of based on just a reaction. You know, it was like you were reacting to something. And what I'm getting at here, though, is that these new identities, these new meta identities that kids are developing, they have massive political backing and these kids are being used as tools. Like when kids are coming out and they're they're entering this this chaos into this chaotic dialogue, inventing new genders constantly, like going in and out of genders, and this is all real. This is this is other stuff where it's like it's not just the internet, guys. Maybe I live in a town. Maybe I live in a part of the country where you this is more prevalent. I mean, I know that, but this is something that you know I see everywhere where I live. This is not just something some obscure little trend on the internet. It's impacted my entire town for years. And that's this this new chaotic game of meta-identity. And it's not just the kids. It's not just teenagers. But as everyone has entered this sort of perpetual childhood, I wouldn't even say it's a perpetual childhood, although you see that. You see where some people kind of dig in. And like, it's like you see so many grown men these days wearing like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle shirts. Like that's kind of the perpetual childhood, which I think is more innocent. It's like, oh, you know, the best days of my life were when I was just playing Super Mario and and watching Ninja Turtles. So as an adult, what I'm going to do is I'm going to like wear Ninja Turtle shirts and play video games all day. You know, I can kind of understand that perpetual childhood. But what we're seeing now, though, is not so much perpetual childhood as much as perpetual teenage years with that same angst going along with it. So when I'm talking about young people, I'm not just talking about what's going on with the teenagers who are really just out. You want to talk about meta identities. It's just I don't even understand it anymore. I don't even understand what they're talking about. 
I don't even understand what they're trying to be. And they'll, they'll scream at you that this is their real identity. But that's what everybody does when they're going through a phase. That's where the entire joke of, it's not a phase, dad. It's not a phase, dad. It's not a phase. You know, that that's what kids are trying to prove. Like, I wanted to get a tattoo when I was like six, 15 or 16 and I begged my mom. I was like, please sign off on it. I'll draw my own tattoo. She said, no. She's like, wait till you're 18 and get it yourself. And I'm glad because I don't have any tattoos today and tattoos are fine and everything. I might've, I might've talked about this recently, but the tattoo wasn't because I really wanted that specific tattoo. I didn't even know what I was going to get. I probably would have ended up with like a misfits tattoo or something that I would hate today, you know, or I would have drawn my own, but it would have been a shitty drawing and I would just have some shitty teenage drawing on my body. You know, I'm glad I didn't end up doing that because by the time I turned 18, I'd, it wasn't even a tattoo wasn't even on my mind. And that's because when I wanted the tattoo, it was really just a way of, of telling people like I'm serious about myself. I'm serious about what I'm into. This isn't just a phase. I'm serious enough to get a tattoo in high school, guys. That was what I was communicating. And I'm glad my mom said no, because it's not a good reason to get a tattoo. And I, I don't want to live the rest of my life having to explain like, oh, well, my tattoos represent a different phase in my life. And I got this one when I was 15. And, you know, I hate it now, but I, I actually love it because it represents this period in my story. And I'm glad I don't have to do that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And like, I have no beef with tattoos, honestly, but I'm just glad that I personally didn't get one then and don't have one now. My, uh, my whole, uh, you know, I'm still, I'm into body mod though. I'm into body mod, which is why I exercise. And I'm losing my hair, so that's body mod. Body mod all around. It's not just tattoo shops and piercings and uh, plastic surgery. Everything's body mod. You eat, I ate too much last night. Body mod. I didn't eat enough last night. Body mod. Body mod, body mod. This is my child. His name is body mod. He's a body man. But with these, uh, what I was trying to communicate though, with the, by asking my mom for a tattoo, was just that I wanted to communicate that, like, I'm willing to do something to my body permanently that reinforces my identity. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, with more recent trends among youth, they want to do permanent things to their body too that reinforce their identity. And there's a lot of controversy over it. But tattoos are old hat. Like, like the thing about, like, if you're a teenager today, your dad very well might have full sleeves. He might listen to, like, Anti-Flag, if you remember that band. Like, if, if, you're, if you're 16 years old today and your dad has tattoos and listens to punk what else are you going to do? You got to take it a step further. You either have to be more conservative, which is a pattern. Like a woman I worked with who was like an ex-punk who was super liberal. I think she was in her 50s. She just couldn't understand like how her son was like a right-wing Trumpsfeld supporting type. And it's like, you can't understand. His mom is an ex-punk liberal. Of course he's going to be a conservative, you know? It's like, you either do that, or you take the liberalism or progressivism, whatever you want to call it, even further out. Which I think is what we're seeing now with these meta-identities, where kids don't even know what they are. Yet they want to make permanent changes to their body. And tattoos are old hat. You know, the old ways of expressing your identity are old hat. So we're seeing, we're seeing just, it seems like every day there's another branch, like, like the, these ideas are just branching out from other ideas and mutating. And so, like I said a few minutes ago, whereas like my generation, our identities were based on our hobbies and interests. And even though a part of that was like us 
like, even though a part of that was us thinking about our own identity and saying like, you know, basically like we would sometimes put our identity before our hobbies and interests. Like I'll readily admit when I was a kid, like I, I bought a shirt by a band, you know, I didn't even own any of their albums. But I was like, I want to express myself using that band as part of my identity. But then like, but the thing is though, like I would reconcile that by like, I would buy one of their albums and like, I probably knew I would like it. You know, it's like that sort of thing. But sometimes as a kid, you'd be like, oh, I'm at the concert and uh, you know, I, I can, I, I have enough money to either buy a CD or a shirt. And sometimes you buy the shirt because expressing yourself is more important in that moment. You know, adding that band to your identity is more important. So you would put your identity before your actual hobbies and interests, but it doesn't change the fact that your identity was still based on those hobbies and interests. But, you know, what we're seeing today is where identity is the main hobby and interest of these kids. And not all of them are kids. And everything else is kind of peripheral and everything is political. And they do have mainstream political support. And that political, medical, institutional support, you know, tells them it's okay to permanently change yourself right now. Basically, like, you should be able to get that tattoo even if your mom says no. And in fact, we'll help you get that tattoo even if your mom doesn't support it. But it, obviously it deals with an issue that's allegedly much deeper than a tattoo. But the conversation on that is shut down. I think it's fairly obvious that, because I mean, the thing is, is like, we'll know in a few years, like who, who is doubled down? Like not doubled down, but like who is truly committed to that? Like we'll have an idea in a few years, hopefully, as to like who truly felt they were born in the wrong body and is committed to that. And maybe all of this will help that person feel more accepted, that person who is truly committed. Because the last thing that I want to, the, the, the last way that I want to come across is as someone who tells other people what to do with their bodies, with themselves. I don't believe in doing that. I don't believe in telling people they can't dress like a woman, act like a woman. I'm not out to tell anybody they can't do that. It goes against my principles to tell someone they can't do that. But it also goes against my principles to tell us that we can't actually talk about that in nuanced terms because there is an obvious trend taking place. And it's the result of meta-conversations, meta-identities, people having no idea where they even are. They have no idea who they are or where they are. And that's because a lot of their mental energy, a lot of their focus exists in this meta-world. A lot of it online, a lot of it in computers. And a lot of the conversations they're having are removed from the actual feelings and emotions that human beings have. Because people are saying, oh, when you need to talk to somebody and they might be upset, what you tell them is this script. I mean, part of the joy of getting to know people, part of the joy of conversation is that there are hits and misses and you never know like what the, you never know like what the, uh, what the bridge is. Like, you never know exactly what it is that's going to, like, signal to somebody. Like I, like, I try to think sometimes about, like, how I became friends with certain people, and I can never remember. What I can tell you, though, is it was always off script. Like, whoever I consider a true friend of mine, that friendship developed completely off script. It never developed because we sat and, like, remembered what somebody told us to say you know, and all those are filled with hits and misses, too. But that's what a friendship is to me. It's like, it's filled with hits and misses, but they don't impact the bottom line, which is friendship. And so when you have these meta conversations that are based on like a script that some mental health professional gave you, 
or that you saw in some infographic or you read in some article intended for housewives, you know, you end up having these indirect conversations that are completely on script. And I don't think that they actually relieve what it is that the other person is trying to resolve by talking to you. And in fact, it ends up feeling kind of like a betrayal if somebody you know talks to you that way. Like when that person that I love responded to some rant that I had to make about something. And and like I said, it was filled with humor. It was like, even if you don't like the humor, it's like you should at least understand that by, by including humor in something I'm saying, I'm communicating to you. Here I am talking that way. See, but no, when I include humor, sometimes you have to, but when I'm including humor in something I'm saying, I'm communicating to that person that you don't have to worry. The fact that I can joke about it. I mean, I've been in really serious work meetings before where I'm in trouble and I use humor in that situation to kind of diffuse it, not to get out of it, not as like a means to an end. But just as a way of kind of saying like, hey, just so you guys know, even though I'm on the chopping block, maybe you don't have to worry about me being too upset. And even if I make my points and even if I stand up for myself, even though I care by including humor in this, I'm just letting you know that I'm not out of control because if I can include humor in what I'm saying, that means that I'm fully in control. I have full control over what I'm saying if I make the time to include a joke or humor. And that's sort of that bathos idea that I was talking about in a recent episode where it's like the juxtaposition between something that's gravely serious, like let's say in a movie. It shows something gravely serious and then it does a jump cut to something slapstick or goofy or that just contrasts heavily, that just changes the mood abruptly. But the bathos idea, it's often something kind of comical. Where it's like it shows something very serious and then it cuts to something else and it's something goofy. And that's a powerful effect when it's not overused. Just like juxtaposition in general. Very powerful effect when it's not abused and overused. And that includes for just talking to somebody. Like if you've ever been talking to somebody who's grieving and they're like bawling their eyes out. And they take a moment to kind of like smile and they get a glimmer in their eye and they make a joke about it. They're actually communicating to you, don't worry too much about me. I I have some level of control. It's when people are out of control that's a problem. And it's when people are out of control that they don't have a sense of humor. And they don't even pick up on a sense of humor. All nuance is gone. And that's increasingly the climate we're in. You know, we're increasingly in a climate where... Humor is shunned. And I mean, just to go back to like being in a, in a meeting, like being in a serious work meeting, especially when like something very serious is being discussed. Let's say it involves you getting in trouble for something and you manage to break the ice with humor. You can see that people appreciate it, but they're also kind of scared. They're like, what's he doing? We're supposed to act like this is a funeral. Doesn't he realize that like he, you know, he's in trouble. How could he possibly find humor in this? And he's not using it against us. Like it it really confuses people because they're like, wait, I thought we were supposed to be. And that's the beauty of it too, is that humor, like it takes you out of the moment. So anyway, this is just me talking though about how like that is an area of just fundamental disconnect I have with certain people who I love is just that they've kind of taken on that way of speaking and it makes me not want to talk to them. You know, it makes, and maybe they don't want to talk to me, but it's just like, it removes all intensity It removes all humor. It removes the dynamics of the conversation. It's kind of like compression. You know, in audio production, people talk about how audio production used to be better. Audio mastering used to be better because they didn't compress everything. And so the natural natural dynamics were there. Like quiet parts sounded quiet. Loud (laughs) Loud parts sounded loud. Bass sounded bassy, treble sounded trebly. There was a dynamic range to it. But then over time, you know, especially with digitization, we started compressing the heck out of everything. 
and you can see it just in the wave file. Like if you look at the wave file of a, of a song, you can see where a song that hasn't been compressed has far more peaks and valleys. And, and if you know anything about audio, this is all just obvious to you. You might, you might even be an audiophile, but you don't have to be an audiophile to recognize this. You don't have to torture children to, to know this. Um, you know, where if, but if you look at a, at a, a more modern song that has been heavily compressed, it tends to look more just like a, a you know, there, there, are, there are no peaks and valleys. It's just kind of like a, a flat horizon. And of course, people know that and they've tried to get around it. But still, like you can't completely, you can't artificially create dynamics like that. And when a song is very compressed, the quiet parts sound loud. And the loud parts don't sound quite as loud, but everything in general is loud. The whole thing is kind of screaming at you. And that's kind of how it feels. Like when I have a conversation with somebody and they kind of revert to that script, they kind of revert to that way of talking where it's this meta conversation. I kind of feel like the conversation instantly becomes compressed. The natural dynamics, the natural peaks and valleys, the hits and misses of talking to a human being, you might as well be talking to AI. You know, you might as well be talking to AI. You might as well be, it might as well be AI using some algorithm to recommend words to you. And I don't say this with any malice towards specific people, because if I had malice about this, I would have to feel, I, I would have to be angry at like half the people I know these days. And to somebody who, thinks this way now, they actually increasingly, they, they show increasing discomfort for anything that doesn't communicate this way. They show increasing discomfort for anything that goes off script. And th that just saying that makes it sound like, man, you gotta, you gotta tune in, tune out, drop out, man. You got to think outside the the system, man. You know, I sound like I'm saying that, but it's not like that's wrong. You know, that's the thing, too. Even though that way of thinking has become such a cliche, like this Timothy Leary sort of way of thinking has become such a cliche. It's like that doesn't mean that it's wrong or bad advice if you know what you're doing. But I think some of it comes from this view that everybody's out of control. And I think that's because people don't really know the signs that somebody is in control. And we have this tendency to see any raw expression as an out-of-control person. And that plays out in the free speech arguments, you know, that plays out in the discussions that take place where it's like, if somebody is saying something you don't agree with, we now see that as that person is out of control and something needs to be done to control them. That's 100% what's going on. When you boil it all down, that is 100% what's going on. People are going through life on these scripts. And even the way that they talk has been scripted now. What I'm hearing is that you're feeling this... You know, it's, it's a meta view of life itself. And so people are increasingly operating on not just a script, but a, the entire lexicon, the entire tone, the format itself has now also been given to them. And, and it's continually reinforced. And you're told that if you don't talk that way, well, you're out of control. And the truth is, is that there are many ways that you can signify to somebody that you are in full control. But they involve actually listening to somebody. They involve actually paying attention. 
And humor is central to that. Humor is at the center of that. And so it's unsurprising when humor gets targeted. Because humor neutralizes, humor signals that the, the person is in control. Take